Welcome to the Michael Myers Minute. Well, we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one terrifying minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Minute 21 begins outside South Pasadena High School, standing in for Haddonfield High School. Exterior, high school, day. Cheerleaders, continued. Couldn't be prouder, can't hear us now, we'll yell a little louder. We're from Haddonfield, couldn't be prouder, can't hear us now, we'll yell a little louder. Etc. They kind of keep going, but it trails off, because we're with Lori and Linda. From the script, Lori and Linda stroll down the front steps of the high school and turn up the street. Lori carries another large stack of books. On top is a physics book. We'll see in minute 22 that Lori is also apparently taking chemistry. So two science classes, same semester. Linda is a knockout in tight jeans and tight t-shirt, the script says. She carries no books. This isn't quite true, but we'll get to that in a second. Linda Vanderclock, as we mentioned way back in Minute 2, is played by PJ Souls. In the larger Halloween universe, Linda has a brother Kyle, parents Ray and Marilyn. I believe we see them in the Rob Zombie remake. Linda, spelled with a Y in the film, but an I in the novelization, means pretty. Vanderclock means of the clock. I'm not sure why Linda has such a unique last name. Probably just named after another of Carpenter's girlfriends. Since I'm looking at name meanings right now, Laurie Strode may be named after an ex of Carpenter's, but the name is also a good one for a final girl. The name can be a girl's or boy's name, Laurie. It finds its origins in either the Latin Laurentum, from the place of the laurel leaves, and laurel leaves are a symbol of victory, or from the Irish Lorcan, meaning fierce. And Strode, on the one hand, the surname comes from the Irish parish of Strood, but I find it interesting that it is also technically a verb. Has tense of stride. So Laurie Strode is effectively named Fierce Decisive Steps. Linda. Oh, look at you. Look at all the books you have. You need a shopping cart to get home. Linda laughs. She carries a compact and touches up her lipstick. Laurie. Except, weirdly, with the ADR or the looping, this doesn't quite sound like Jamie Lee Curtis's voice in this line, which is kind of odd. She says, yeah, not funny. Linda, you know, it's totally insane. From the novelization, quote, It's totally insane, the leggy blonde was saying. Her hands flew out in a wild gesture, making Lori laugh. Linda always made Lori laugh. Just about everything the girl was, everything she did, was so alien to Lori's thinking and behavior that Linda was like a visitor from another planet. Whereas Lori's beauty was modestly contained in quiet clothing and hairstyle, Linda wore skin-tight jeans and sweaters and bright ribbons in her hair that virtually shouted sex here to anyone with eyes to see. Linda had never learned to moderate her voice, so everything she said was an announcement or a declaration supported by gesticulating hands that never seemed to be burdened by such impediments as books or schoolwork. The girl's friends had unanimously elected her president of the Inward of the Month Club, Linda was a lightning rod for trendy phrases which she used to exhaustion for a month and dropped from her vocabulary forever, to everyone's immense relief. Three months ago it had been weird. Two months ago, gross. Last month she was calling everyone Jack. This month's word was totally. End quote. Linda's pack of cigarettes, which we will see again in minute 64, sticks out of her bag. She smokes Vantage cigarettes, as does a green comb, a brush, and two paperback books. The script says she doesn't carry books. She doesn't carry school books. She has two candlelight romance novels, One Love Forever by Christine King, 
I can only find the cover blurb for that one. We barely see the cover. Better in minute 22 than here. Quote, her fantasy lover had filled her nights, her dreams. Now he was back, wanting her youth, her love again. End quote. The other book is Tender Longings by Barbara Lynn, described as, quote, Lovely professional ice skater Vanessa Richmond always felt at home in the rink, even thousands of miles away from her native California. When she was chosen to teach skating in England under the great and glamorous Scott Farrell, it seemed that she had found more than just a fulfilling career. Wealthy, sophisticated Kim Winter, the guardian of her most promising pupil, had swept her off her feet. But the fragile love they shared was destined to bring them more pain than pleasure. As the rift between them grew, bringing with it the first cruel pangs of loneliness, Vanessa found herself seeking Scott Farrell for the companionship she now so badly needed. And in that quiet place where the heart retreats to discover its deepest desires, she learned that there are many kinds of love, but only one that lasts forever. End quote. These aren't even trashy romance novels, what my mother used to call cover strippers, but they are teen-centric romance stories. And Linda carries two of them. Linda continues. We have three new cheers to learn in the morning. The game is in the afternoon. I get my hair done at five and the dance is at eight. I'll be totally wiped out. Now this comes back to IMDb goof territory. Halloween was on Tuesday in 1978, so there's no way Linda could have learned new cheers in the morning for a morning football game during school hours. It's not a morning football game. She literally just said the game is in the afternoon. Who wrote this? Never mind. We all know I'm in a constant war with IMDb. And then spend the rest of the day getting ready for the dance later that night. Now, I've said before and I'll say again, this movie treats Halloween both in 1963 and in 1978 as if it is a Friday night, the weekend comes after. That's not how Halloween works. It's not a thing where you get the next day off of school. It's not on winter break where you don't have school the next day. Here it is a Tuesday in 1978. They should have school the next day. Haddonfield could have had Wednesday off of school, but there's a bigger problem here. Never mind the scheduling. We can hear the cheerleaders practicing right now. Linda should be back there learning those three new cheers instead of walking home. In the commentary, Jamie Lee Curtis comments, Look at how enthralled I am. The way she stares at PJ Souls. Linda and Lori, PJ and Jamie, exit the high school on Fremont Avenue, South Pasadena. Lori, I don't think you have enough to do tomorrow. Linda, totally. Location changes. We're actually a mile or so north in Pasadena, the corner of Fairview Avenue and Highland Street. They're turning off of Fairview onto Highland. Uh, check Instagram, Michael Myers Minute, and you'll see what the street looks like now. All the ivy is gone. That one tree on the corner is gone. It looks different and I think worse, but never mind. It, it's interesting. Lori, as usual, I have nothing to do. Linda, it's your own fault, and I don't feel a bit sorry for you. She's such a wonderful friend. <laughs> Annie and Linda both. We'll come back to that in other times. In the novelization, we get a little more Lori and Linda before Annie joins them. Quote, It's your own fault, and I don't feel sorry for you, Linda declared as they turned a corner onto a shady avenue. Look at you. Lori strode. You dress like a fugitive from Miss Prudence's school for proper young virgins. Your hair is totally plain. You wear no makeup at all. No eyeshadow. Not even lipstick. If you're hoping to catch a boy, forget it. You couldn't catch a frog the way you look. Thanks a lot. Don't get insulted. You know perfectly well how pretty I think you are. But you go around like being pretty is embarrassing. I don't think anyone in Haddonfield knows if you have any boobs. You're always hiding them behind a stack of books that would bring a sumo wrestler to his knees, for God's sake. And that walk. Let's jump out of the quote for a moment. I've talked about Lori's waddle before. How she supposedly walks strange. 
And annoyingly, Jamie Lee Curtis mentions it in the commentary track, but I'll get to that when it comes up. Anyway, continuing the novelization quote. Lori was shaking with laughter. Enough! That walk, Linda shouted her down, really warming to the subject. With all those books and bags, you look like a drunken mountain goat with an injured... End quote. Lori only has a purse, one binder, and three textbooks. She is not that overladen. Annie comes out around the corner behind them and calls after Lori and Linda. Annie carries, among her books, a large art book, like a wirebound sketchbook. I guess she draws. Annie is a variant of Anna, or Hannah, meaning gracious or favored. Bracket, as a surname, comes from the old French brachet, I guess it would be, a type of hound. Plus, bracket is, like strode, a verb. To bracket is to enclose. Maybe the last name fits the sheriff more than his daughter. Let us get to know Annie a little as well, from the novelization. Quote, They didn't have to turn around to recognize Annie's strident voice, which Linda had characterized once as so sharp it could shatter a hero sandwich. Their inseparable friends slid between them and their pace doubled. Annie was always in a rush, though no one was ever able to figure out why she rushed to get somewhere and rushed to get out there. She rushed to eat, but then found herself with so much time on her hands she complained about being bored. She was dark-haired with abundant ringlets that glinted auburn in the late afternoon sunlight. She wore a red sweater and sweater vest over that, but it did very little to moderate the thrust of a very large pair of breasts that jiggled unharnessed beneath the fabric. Despite the trends, most of the teenage girls in Haddonfield chose not to disdain bras, either because of traditional Midwestern modesty or parental restrictions. But Annie, whose father was the town sheriff, cared not a whit about traditional Midwestern modesty or parental restrictions. She not only had been the first of her crowd to abandon her bra, she had been the first to abandon her virginity. Linda had been the second to sleep with a boy, and now the two girls talked about it like connoisseurs talking about three-star French restaurants. End quote. Annie. Hey, Linda, Lori. Linda lights a cigarette. The girls stop and wait for Annie. Annie, why didn't you wait for me? Linda, we did. Fifteen minutes. You totally never showed up. Annie, that's not true. Here I am. Second 48, they start to cross Highland to the north. This next line suggests insightfulness. Lori, what's wrong, Annie? You're not smiling. Annie. I'm never smiling again. Paul dragged me into the boys' locker room to tell me. Second 55, Annie is interrupted by Linda offering her the cigarette. Lori, exploring uncharted territory? Linda, it's been totally charted. Annie, we just talked. Linda and Lori, both. Part of that great Deborah Hill dialogue that these girls are actually friends. Sure. And the minute ends. We are drifting into what Richard Knoll calls in Blood Money, a history of the first teen slasher film cycle, part two, disruption. Specifically, the first part of disruption, leisure. Let me backtrack. Knoll breaks down the slasher film structure into three main parts, seven subparts. For comparison, John Kenneth Muir, less concerned with structure so much as content, tropes, breaks the slasher film paradigm into six main parts, with the last two having seven and five subparts, respectively. I'm sure Muir's stuff will come into play later. For now, Noel breaks the film down as Part 1. Setup 1. Trigger 
Events propel a human, the killer, upon a homicidal trajectory. 2. Threat. The killer targets a group of hedonistic youths for killing. We're also sort of in this section in the movie still. Part 2. Disruption. 3. Leisure. Youths interact recreationally in an insular quotidian location. 4. Stalking. A shadowy killer tracks youths in that location. 5. Murders. A shadowy killer kills some of the youths. Part 3. Resolution. 6. Confrontation. The remaining character challenges the killer. 7. Neutralization. The immediate threat posed by the killer is eliminated. The threat has happened. Michael targeted Tommy, then moved on to Lori. We are about to see that he is following Lori some more, seeing him in the car next minute into minute 23, and standing by the bush in minute 24, plus by the clothesline in minute 27, and following Annie's car in minute 32. This is the threat into the stalking. Meanwhile, the girls are heading into the leisure section. Lori is wary, but still, their lives as teenage girls go on. Noel suggests, quote, Stalking undermines potential sympathy for the killer by demonstrating that his or her actions are premeditated. Premeditated. Is that a typo from me or a typo from Noel? I'm not sure. Depicting a killer as depersonalized, devoid of psychological detail, and faceless. And this enabled filmmakers to sidestep suggestions that she or he acts sadistically by mobilizing a human monster. That is all for Minute 21. The Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk us on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute or Instagram, Michael Myers Minute, or join our Facebook listeners group, 45 Lampkin Lane. Don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a nice review if you like what you hear. Until next time. Welcome to the Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one terrifying minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Minute 21 begins outside South Pasadena High School, standing in for Haddonfield High School. Exterior, high school, day. Cheerleaders, continued. Couldn't be prouder, can't hear us now, we'll yell a little louder. We're from Haddonfield, couldn't be prouder, can't hear us now, we'll yell a little louder. Etc. They kind of keep going, but it trails off, because we're with Lori and Linda. From the script, Lori and Linda stroll down the front steps of the high school and turn up the street. Lori carries another large stack of books. On top is a physics book. We'll see in minute 22 that Lori is also apparently taking chemistry. So two science classes, same semester. Linda is a knockout in tight jeans and tight t-shirt, the script says. She carries no books. This isn't quite true, but we'll get to that in a second. Linda Vanderklok, as we mentioned way back in minute two, is played by PJ Souls. In the larger Halloween universe, Linda has a brother Kyle, parents Ray and Marilyn. I believe we see them in the Rob Zombie remake. Linda, spelled with a Y in the film, but an I in the novelization, means pretty. Vanderklok means all of the clock. I'm not sure why Linda has such a unique last name. Probably just named after another of Carpenter's girlfriends. Since I'm looking at name meanings right now, Laurie Strode may be named after an ex of Carpenter's, but the name is also a good one for a final girl. 
The name can be a girl's or boy's name, Lori. It finds its origins in either the Latin Laurentum, from the place of the laurel leaves, and laurel leaves are a symbol of victory, or from the Irish Lorcan, meaning fierce. And Strode, on the one hand, the surname comes from the Irish parish of Strood, but I find it interesting that it is also technically a verb. Past tense of stride. So Laurie Strode is effectively named Fierce Decisive Steps. Linda. Oh, look at you. Look at all the books you have. You need a shopping cart to get home. Linda laughs. She carries a compact and touches up her lipstick. Laurie. Except, weirdly, with the ADR or the looping, this doesn't quite sound like Jamie Lee Curtis's voice in this line, which is kind of odd. She says, yeah, not funny. Linda, you know, it's totally insane. From the novelization, quote, It's totally insane, the leggy blonde was saying. Her hands flew out in a wild gesture, making Lori laugh. Linda always made Lori laugh. Just about everything the girl was, everything she did, was so alien to Lori's thinking and behavior that Linda was like a visitor from another planet. Whereas Lori's beauty was modestly contained in quiet clothing and hairstyle, Linda wore skin-tight jeans and sweaters and bright ribbons in her hair that virtually shouted sex here to anyone with eyes to see. Linda had never learned to moderate her voice, so everything she said was an announcement or a declaration supported by gesticulating hands that never seemed to be burdened by such impediments as books or schoolwork. The girl's friends had unanimously elected her president of the Inward of the Month Club, Linda was a lightning rod for trendy phrases which she used to exhaustion for a month and dropped from her vocabulary forever, to everyone's immense relief. Three months ago it had been weird. Two months ago, gross. Last month she was calling everyone Jack. This one's word was totally. End quote. Linda's pack of cigarettes, which we will see again in minute 64, sticks out of her bag. She smokes Vantage cigarettes, as does a green comb, a brush, and two paperback books. The script says she doesn't carry books. She doesn't carry school books. She has two candlelight romance novels, One Love Forever by Christine King. I can only find the cover blurb for that one. We barely see the cover, better in minute 22 than here. Quote, her fantasy lover had filled her nights, her dreams. Now he was back, wanting her youth, her love again. End quote. The other book is Tender Longings by Barbara Lynn, described as, quote, Lovely professional ice skater Vanessa Richmond always felt at home in the rink, even thousands of miles away from her native California. When she was chosen to teach skating in England under the great and glamorous Scott Farrell, it seemed that she had found more than just a fulfilling career. Wealthy, sophisticated Kim Winter, the guardian of her most promising pupil, had swept her off her feet. But the fragile love they shared was destined to bring them more pain than pleasure. As the rift between them grew, bringing with it the first cruel pangs of loneliness, Vanessa found herself seeking Scott Farrell for the companionship she now so badly needed. And in that quiet place where the heart retreats to discover its deepest desire, she learned that there are many kinds of love, but only one that lasts forever. End quote. These aren't even trashy romance novels, what my mother used to call cover strippers, but they are teen-centric romance stories. And Linda carries two of them. Linda continues. We have three new cheers to learn in the morning. The game is in the afternoon. I get my hair done at five and the dance is at eight. I'll be totally wiped out. Now this comes back to IMDb goof territory. Halloween was on Tuesday in 1978, so there's no way Linda could have learned new cheers in the morning for a morning football game during school hours. It's not a morning football game. She literally just said the game is in the afternoon. Who wrote this? Never mind. 
we all know I'm in a constant war with IMDb. And then spend the rest of the day getting ready for the dance later that night. Now, I've said before and I'll say again, this movie treats Halloween both in 1963 and in 1978 as if it is a Friday night, the weekend comes after. That's not how Halloween works. It's not a thing where you get the next day off of school. It's not on winter break where you don't have school the next day. Here it is a Tuesday in 1978. They should have school the next day. Haddonfield could have had Wednesday off of school, but there's a bigger problem here. Never mind the scheduling. We can hear the cheerleaders practicing right now. Linda should be back there learning those three new cheers instead of walking home. In the commentary, Jamie Lee Curtis comments, Look at how enthrall I am. The way she stares at PJ Souls. Linda and Lori, PJ and Jamie, exit the high school on Fremont Avenue, South Pasadena. Lori, I don't think you have enough to do tomorrow. Linda, totally. Location changes. We're actually a mile or so north in Pasadena, the corner of Fairview Avenue and Highland Street. They're turning off of Fairview onto Highland. Uh, check Instagram, Michael Myers Minute, and you'll see what the street looks like now. All the ivy is gone. That one tree on the corner is gone. It looks different and I think worse, but never mind. It, it's interesting. Lori, as usual, I have nothing to do. Linda, it's your own fault, and I don't feel a bit sorry for you. She's such a wonderful friend. <laughs> Annie and Linda both. We'll come back to that in other times. In the novelization, we get a little more Lori and Linda before Annie joins them. Quote, It's your own fault, and I don't feel sorry for you, Linda declared as they turned a corner onto a shady avenue. Look at you. Lori strode. You dress like a fugitive from Miss Prudence's school for proper young virgins. Your hair is totally plain. You wear no makeup at all. No eyeshadow. Not even lipstick. If you're hoping to catch a boy, forget it. You couldn't catch a frog the way you look. Thanks a lot. Don't get insulted. You know perfectly well how pretty I think you are. But you go around like being pretty is embarrassing. I don't think anyone in Haddonfield knows if you have any boobs. You're always hiding them behind a stack of books that would bring a sumo wrestler to his knees, for God's sake. And that walk. Let's jump out of the quote for a moment. I've talked about Lori's waddle before. How she supposedly walks strange. And annoyingly, Jamie Lee Curtis mentions it in the commentary track, but I'll get to that when it comes up. Anyway, continuing the novelization quote. Lori was shaking with laughter. Enough! That walk, Linda shouted her down, really warming to the subject. With all those books and bags, you look like a drunken mountain goat with an injured... End quote. Lori only has a purse, one binder, and three textbooks. She is not that overladen. Annie comes out around the corner behind them and calls after Lori and Linda. Annie carries, among her books, a large art book, like a wirebound sketchbook. I guess she draws. Annie is a variant of Anna, or Hannah, meaning gracious or favored. Bracket, as a surname, comes from the old French... Brachet, I guess it would be. A type of hound. Plus, bracket is, like strode, a verb. To bracket is to enclose. Maybe the last name fits the sheriff more than his daughter. Let us get to know Annie a little as well, from the novelization. Quote, They didn't have to turn around to recognize Annie's strident voice, which Linda had characterized once as so sharp it could shatter a hero sandwich. Their inseparable friends slid between them and their pace doubled. Annie was always in a rush, though no one was ever able to figure out why. She rushed to get somewhere and rushed to get out there. She rushed to eat, but then found herself with so much time on her hands she complained about being bored. 
She was dark-haired with abundant ringlets that glinted auburn in the late afternoon sunlight. She wore a red sweater and sweater vest over that, but it did very little to moderate the thrust of a very large pair of breasts that jiggled unharnessed beneath the fabric. Despite the trends, most of the teenage girls in Haddonfield chose not to disdain bras, either because of traditional Midwestern modesty or parental restrictions. But Annie, whose father was the town sheriff, cared not a whit about traditional Midwestern modesty or parental restrictions. She not only had been the first of her crowd to abandon her bra, she had been the first to abandon her virginity. Linda had been the second to sleep with a boy, and now the two girls talked about it like connoisseurs talking about three-star French restaurants. End quote. Annie. Hey, Linda, Lori. Linda lights a cigarette. The girls stop and wait for Annie. Annie, why didn't you wait for me? Linda, we did. Fifteen minutes. You totally never showed. Annie, that's not true. Here I am. Second 48, they start to cross Highland to the north. This next line suggests insightfulness. Lori, what's wrong, Annie? You're not smiling. Annie. I'm never smiling again. Paul dragged me into the boys' locker room to tell me. Second 55, Annie is interrupted by Linda offering her the cigarette. Lori, exploring uncharted territory? Linda, it's been totally charted. Annie, we just talked. Linda and Lori, both. Part of that great Deborah Hill dialogue that these girls are actually friends. Sure. And the minute ends. We are drifting into what Richard Knoll calls in Blood Money, a history of the first teen slasher film cycle, part two, Disruption. Specifically the first part of Disruption, Leisure. Let me backtrack. Knoll breaks down the slasher film structure into three main parts, seven subparts. For comparison, John Kenneth Muir, less concerned with structure so much as content, tropes, breaks the slasher film paradigm into six main parts, with the last two having seven and five subparts, respectively. I'm sure Muir's stuff will come into play later. For now, Noel breaks the film down as Part 1. Setup 1. Trigger Events propel a human, the killer, upon a homicidal trajectory. 2. Threat The killer targets a group of hedonistic youths for killing. We're also sort of in this section in the movie still. Part 2. Disruption 3. Leisure Youths interact recreationally in an insular quotidian location. 4. Stalking. A shadowy killer tracks youths in that location. 5. Murders. A shadowy killer kills some of the youths. Part 3. Resolution. 6. Confrontation. The remaining character challenges the killer. 7. Neutralization. The immediate threat posed by the killer is eliminated. The threat has happened. Michael targeted Tommy, then moved on to Lori. We are about to see that he is following Laurie some more, seeing him in the car next minute into minute 23, and standing by the bush in minute 24, plus by the clothesline in minute 27, and following Annie's car in minute 32. This is the threat into the stalking. Meanwhile, the girls are heading into the leisure section. Laurie is wary. But still, their lives as teenage girls go on. Noel suggests, quote, Stalking undermines potential sympathy for the killer by demonstrating that his or her actions are premeditated. Premeditated. Is that a typo from me or a typo from Noel? I'm not sure. Depicting a killer as depersonalized, devoid of psychological detail, and faceless. And this enabled filmmakers to sidestep suggestions that she or he acts sadistically by mobilizing a human monster. 
That is all for Minute 21. The Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk us on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute or Instagram, Michael Myers Minute, or join our Facebook listeners group, 45 Lampkin Lane. Don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a nice review if you like what you hear. Until next time.